When I was a kid growing up in Southern Oregon, one of our yearly tasks that we had as a family, and other people in the church would join in with us in this task, was we would cut firewood for both the church and for our home. The church had a wood furnace that would heat the sanctuary. It was a pretty big operation. It had fans, and it would blow heat in, and it was really hard to control, and it was a, a nuisance. And then there were three other wood stoves throughout the church building to heat the rest of the church, and then we had a wood stove at our home. And so the goal was, on average, we would pack away 45 cords of wood a year. A lot of wood. Matter of fact, if I was to help you understand what that looks like, over the nine-year period that we were, my dad pastored at that church, we put away just over 405 cords of wood in nine years. Now, that doesn't mean much to you unless you go and cut wood, but if a household, let's say, that has a wood stove burned five cords of wood a year, it would take 81 years to burn 405 cords of wood. 81 years. The aftermath of all that wood cutting that we did with my dad is I have three brothers. And my sister didn't go out in the woods with us much, but of the four of us boys, none of us own a wood stove, none of us own a chainsaw, <laughs> and none of us like cutting wood. Thank you very much, Dad. But you would think that all those nine years of all the wood that we cut, that there would have been some kind of maybe major mishap out in the woods, running a chainsaw, double-bit axes we were using that were very sharp, uh, sledgehammer and wedges, and all that stuff. And yet, all of us have all of our fingers. There were no major incidents over those years of cutting all that wood. The only thing that happened that came really close to being a major issue was the one spring day when my dad said to us, uh, my younger brother and my brother just older than me, the three of us boys, Dwight and John. Dwight is now known as D.W. And John, his nickname that still stuck and is with him today is John John. Okay, so D.W., John John, and myself went on a Saturday morning with my dad to go cut a couple pickup loads of wood. I don't know, for whatever reason, my little brother, John, he got out of the woodcutting process. He got to go down to the creek off the hill and go fishing. He had his fishing pole and all this stuff. He went fishing while my brother, D.W., and I, we slaved away cutting wood, stacking it in the truck, getting it ready to haul off. Well, John John apparently had had enough fishing and enough being lazy, and so he thought he would come back up to where the truck was, so he was coming up the hill from the creek through the woods, and there's a little trail that was coming up there, and my dad was cutting the last tree of the day. It happened to be a madrona, and um, that's what those trees look like right there. They're kind of gnarly. Those trees, they're really not good for anything because they twist. You don't want to use them for for building furniture or anything like that. They're just kind of a junk tree, but they're really good for burning because you can put a couple of those logs on last thing at night, and they're so hard and dense that they will keep the heat and burn all night long. And so we would cut down a bunch of this junk wood as well. And so 
John John's running up, coming up the hill to the fishers hole, running. My dad's cutting the appropriate notches in the tree to fall the tree. DW and I, we're standing by the truck because we know if there's any place my dad's not going to drop a tree, it won't be on the truck. So we were safe. And so John John's coming up the hill. The chainsaw's running over here. My dad doesn't see John John. And so he's looking at us, and we're standing by the truck, and we're yelling at him, don't come, stay away. And we're shaking our heads, and we're going like this. Somehow, he thought we were saying, yeah, run for it. So he's trying to run up the hill. Now, it's like a, a movie, slow motion scene in the movie. They've got the camera on John John, and he's running up the hill with his fishing pole in his little bag like this. And then all of a sudden, you pan over, and you see George with the chainsaw cutting. No idea where John John is, but he's cutting the tree. And when he cuts, the tree's falling right onto the path, and it falls right on John John, pinned under the tree. Now, if it would have been a Douglas fir or a yellow pine, he would be dead. But as it was, this gnarly tree, it's got all these gnarly branches. It just kind of landed on top of them. But you can imagine my dad thinking like, oh no, I just fell a tree on my youngest son and I killed him. How am I going to explain that to his mother? Not something you want to go home and go, oh yeah, you know, by the way, uh, we, yeah, we killed your youngest one. He's still out in the woods. We left him there. Animals will take care of him. So you didn't want to have that conversation. But my dad, all of a sudden, he realizes he's looking and you can see the blood drain out of his face. He fires that chainsaw back up. Like 10 men, he's overcutting on the street, and he's ripping this piece off, and he's throwing it down, and he grabs my little brother and picks him up, and he looks all over him, and there isn't even a scratch on him. Nothing. It's a miracle. My dad thought he was dead. I was kind of had a, you know, not that I wanted him dead. <laughs> Maybe maimed a little bit would have been fine. I mean, after all, he got to go fishing. But he, he went fishing, he got to mess around down by the creek, and he got, you know, a tree fell on him, and it was a miracle, angels and everything, and no scratch to show for it. He should have had a limb sticking in his body somewhere or something, or at least a big old whooping for my dad. That's what my dad said. You know, after you, I don't know if you parents do this, you see your kid get hurt, and you're like, oh, no, we got to take him to the hospital, pick him up, and they're fine. You go like, I should whip you for that. Because it scares the life out of you. So the, the whole point is, is that in this process, I, I look at my brother John John, and even today I look at him and I go, you know why you're messed up? Because that tree fell on you and did a little more damage than anybody ever thought. <laughs> and he usually responds with something like, well, that may be true, but what's your excuse? So, and at that point, then we enter into this little discussion. Because he says, talking about that tree, why didn't you and Dwight stop me from running up the hill and having that tree fall on me? It's your fault that you guys didn't, didn't give me the proper signals. And I'm going like, hey, it is not my fault. It is your fault because you can't read hand signals. Stop. Do not come. Go the other way. And so what we do, we start blaming each other for what has happened. That's our nature. Our nature is to blame and shift responsibility to someone else if, else if at all possible. I recently read this little bumper sticker that said, I didn't say you were wrong. I said I was going to blame you. 
You know what my problem is? My problem is my mother. My problem is my wife. My problem is my children. My problem is you. That's my problem. Now, it's not that, that you know, I have anything. It's, it's all on you. The problem is I can see the tiny little speck in your life that I want to bring out, but I really can't see the big glaring problem of my own life. And Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we will look long and hard at the issues of others and yet disregard the more glaring problem of our own life. Here's what he said in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, just a little, here, this is for free. When Jesus originally gave this little analogy, this little picture, word picture for everybody, if you don't understand Jewish humor, you're going like, wow, that was really deep, Jesus. But, but the rest of the Jews who were listening to Jesus give this, they're slapping their knee and laughing hard because this is hysterically funny. Big old log sticking out of your eye, Jesus, that's hilarious. And we go like, Wow, how deep was that? That's, that's amazing. Everybody else is laughing, and you're just like, we have no sense of humor. Kind of. Well, last week we looked at how Jesus said, thou shalt not judge. This week, by the way, if you didn't listen to that, if you want to get caught up in it, don't bother. You'll just feel judged by listening to it. So this week we're going to go even deeper into how relationships can get off track. Today we're talking about the speck and the log. You know, you can divide people in this world into two categories, okay? So if we were to draw two, two circles up here, well, there's a reason why I did not pass art. Okay, those are circles. They're round, kind of, all right? So we can divide this world into two categories, okay? There's the you category over here, and in this category, you know you and you take care of you. And then we have the other category of everybody else in the world, and that's the other. Okay? So we have you and others. And in these two categories, there is only one of, in these two circles, you can only take care of you. You know you, you live by you, you can help you grow, you can help you read, you can only take care of you. But then in the other category, there's nothing you can do for the others. You cannot make the others do anything. I actually heard someone say this morning, I'm the boss of you. And I was thinking, well, that's just going to fit in really nice because actually, you're not the boss of the other person. You're only the boss of you. <laughs> I'm not saying who it was. Now, what we don't get is, is that when we take a look at this category, you know here in this one right here, this little circle where it says you, you know what your faults are, but you ignore them. More likely, what you're doing is you're viewing the little faults of these people over here in the other category, and you're going, listen, I can help you with your life if you will just let me. 
And, and so we, we have this problem because what I want to do is I want to bring clarity to your problem. But here's the bigger issue. I fail to take responsibility for my own life. I'm really great at blaming other people. So this is the log, okay? This is the log. I can't see my problem, and my problem is me. This is my problem, me. And I cannot see my habit of blaming others, judging others, and avoiding responsibility. That's my problem. People go through their whole life, and they will uh, never even identify their real problem. And the real problem is themselves. They'll never identify and go like, you know, the common denominator of all this stuff that's happening in my life is me. They're always looking out and they're always blaming and they're always shifting to someone else. This is so common that you're probably thinking about how about somebody right now you wish were here listening to this message. You're thinking like, this is such a great teaching, so-and-so needs to listen to it. Well, the good news is, is that the people that need to hear it, they're here right now. The bad news is, it's you. Okay? We learn to evade responsibility and assign blame. And even as tiny little kids, we're always doing that. Matter of fact, um, there was a mom and dad who were trying to teach their firstborn child how wonderful and great God is. And so they would say, son, who made the, the sun and the moon? Little boy responds, God did. Well, who made the flowers and the trees? God did. Well, who made the elk and the deer and the antelope? God did. One morning, his mother walks into his bedroom. And as she walks in, it looks like a bomb went off. Because clothes and toys are everywhere. There's been some food that's been hijacked from the kitchen and is now spilt all over the floor. And the mom's standing there looking at this mess, and she looks at her son and asks the parental question, who made this mess? And the little boy responded with, that's exactly right. Now, that's much better than what happened in my home. Because when we would have those situations, and uh, something would go wrong, who broke it, who made the mess, who did this, I would walk in, and I, there, I had three children I didn't know about. I had not me, I don't know, I didn't do it. And those three kids made a huge mess in my house. I don't even know where they went. They left. One day my son, and he shall not be named, but he has blonde hair, he has a wife named Abby and a daughter named Ava. And he lives in Alabama. He came home from junior high school and announced to Lorinda and I, well, I thought I should just tell you. I got in trouble at school today in my home ec class, and I got sent to the principal's office. Okay, so what did you do that would cause you to get sent to the principal's office? Well, there's this girl in our class, and she annoys everybody, and she's just a pain in the rear end to everybody. And I was just thinking, if I could get her to think about something else, she would quit annoying the whole class. I said, so what did you do? He says, well, a couple of my buddies and I were chewing gum, so I got their gum, and I put my gum together, and I put it in her hair. <laughs> and I put it in her hair in such a way that when they cut her hair to get the gum out, it would leave a big, old, missing spot in her hair. It would look really ugly. 
And I was, I, my intent was to get her to think about something else. And I said, that is horrible. I can't believe you did it. So I said, why, how did you ever even get, I mean, like, how did you get caught? Because that's what I want to know. How did you get caught? He said, well, I actually was pretty sneaky, and I got the gun in her hair without her even noticing. And it was like 10 or 15 minutes later that she reached up and touched her head and found this big wad of gum, and she started crying. And so then the teacher went over and looked, and she, the teacher got up and said to the whole class, who did this really horrible thing? And the girl's crying, which she should have been. Who did this horrible thing? And my son Tyson, not to be named, stood up, and he said, I did it. I said, you confessed in front of the class and everything? He goes, well, yeah, she asked the question, and I did it, so I wasn't going to, you know, I, I did. And, you know, at that moment, I was like, I'm so proud of him for taking ownership of his sin, but I'm so disappointed that he has acted so much like me. <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just this thing. But see, that's the idea about what church is supposed to be like. Church is the place when people own their sin and they stand up and they said, I did it. We all cheer and go, thank you for being honest. We want you to be able to come and say, I'm a sinner. Because all of us in this room, that's the one thing we carry together. We carry sin because that's, that's our nature. Our nature is sinful. And yet the thing that we want to do is we want to blame shift and we want to hide it. We don't want to take responsibility for it. And so in this church, when you stand up and you go, I'm a sinner, we're all going to go, yeah, welcome to the crowd. Welcome to the family of sinners. We love you here. And, and so this morning as we're talking about things, and I've said this right from the get-go, we're going to look at somebody, you know, at, at what Jesus has to say about the log and the speck. The log in our eyes and the speck in everybody else's eyes. And I believe God has a specific word for you today. I know that if you take the time throughout this talk and you listen to what God has to say to you, he's going to speak to you. God will impress upon your heart the one word in, the, in your life that he wants to change. If you're listening to what the Spirit has to say, God's going to whisper in your ear today, and it's going to be one word, or it could be a couple of words, and just write it down, because that's what God wants to change in this whole regard to the log that's in our own eyes. When Jesus calls us to focus on the log in our eye, he's calling us to take responsibility for our own life. He's reflecting here a deep truth about how God made us from the beginning. Genesis says that God created human beings. He created them God-like. God blessed them. He said, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for the fish of the sea, be responsible for the, 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 the um, trees and the flowers of the field, be responsible for all of the beasts that roam on the face of the earth. Because God made us to be responsible. It is a godlike thing to be responsible, to have a little sphere that's under my dominion. People are actually happiest when they have responsibility. This is part of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We've been learning this, is that, that we've been given a kingdom. 
And what in that kingdom, here's what God's saying, is that there's this kingdom on earth. It's called your little dominion, your little kingdom. And what he's saying is, and, and we, taught, we were taught this by Jesus when we looked at the prayer. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom in my kingdom, your will in my will being done. And so what God wants is for us to develop this little dominion, our little kingdom, empowered and led by God. He, it's not that he, he's given this kingdom for us to do whatever we want with it. He wants us to glorify him with it. He wants our kingdom to reflect his kingdom. But he's given it to us, and he wants us to have dominion over it. Matter of fact, here's what it's going to look like. How you spend your time, that will be your choice. You will decide. How you treat other people today, you decide. How you're at, what will your attitude be today? What will you fill your mind with today? Those are all decisions that God has given to you to take dominion over your little kingdom to begin with, and it's all on your own little body. God made people to be responsible, and he gave them only one rule to, to begin with. He gave them only one rule that you had to follow. And here's what that one rule was. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not touch it. Do not eat it. Do not go near it. That's the only rule that God gave to the first people. And the first man and woman, what did they do? They ate of the tree. One rule, God said. One rule. All you have to do is obey me in this one thing. And they ate it. And so God comes and he says to Adam, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Now listen, God asked Adam a really simple question. It was, there was such simplicity to it. It's like a, a dad talking to his child. Um, Adam, did you eat of the tree? Adam could have just said, uh, yep, my bad. You commanded me not to, and I did. But that's not what Adam did. Adam got in this thing called the bus, and he drove it right over Eve and parked it on top of her. And then you know what he did? He didn't just say, hey, the woman that, that woman's the one that gave me the fruit. It's her fault. And he didn't stop there. He kind of said this to God. He goes, not only is it that woman, it's the woman you gave me. <laughs> you could have given me somebody else, but No. You gave me that woman. And then she picked that fruit and she gave it to me. So it's her fault and ultimately, God, it's your fault. And then God looks at Eve and says, hey, Eve, did you eat from that tree? And Eve does exactly what Adam does. She goes, well, it's not my fault. It's that silly little snake over there. You created that snake and that snake tempted me. It's not my fault, God. It's that snake's fault, and it's your fault. You see, that's what we do. We get into the whole area where we start to blame shift. We start to put out this whole thing. And, and here's this couple. They set the, the road and the path for every married couple to come after that because they got caught up in the ritual of mutual accusation. How much fruitless time have couples spent together 
in mutual accusation. Hey, did you do that with the kids? No, you were supposed to do that with the kids. Hey, it's not my fault. I told you specifically this morning that you needed to with the kids, and I told you I wasn't going to be around it. And so it's not my fault, it's your fault, and it's everybody else's fault, but nobody takes responsibility. Because we're doing just what our great, 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 however many great parents Adam and Eve did. Mutual accusations. And of course, and so that's what we do. The log is about a spirit of blame and condemnation. Now, there's a pastor named Andy Stanley. I'm sure that you've heard of him. Um, and he's a, he's a really great pastor. And a lot of times when a spouse with distressed marriage comes to talk to him, all they talk about is the other spouse and their fault in the marriage. They blame their partner. Andy will say, you know, clearly the person who is the real problem in this relationship isn't here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw a big circle or a proximity of a circle. Now what I want you to do, he says to the other person who's sitting there, this is the chaos and the pain. This represents the chaos and the pain in your marriage. And so what I want you to do is I want you to draw on here um, your part of this pod of responsibility for the pain and the chaos in your marriage. And inevitably, what they do is they go like this. And then they put me in the little piece. And then they put them on that part. And so what Andy does is as he's got the me and them part, even though Andy probably knows this is not an accurate description of what's really going on in the marriage, but he still is very brilliant because he says, in this, we know that the them, they're not here to talk about it. So what we want to do is we want to focus on the me part. The part that you can actually do something about. The part that you can actually change. And so what we want you to do with this me part is I we're going to spend the next time we have together talking about how you can change this little piece of the pie in your life. And here's what Andy says. Inevitably, they can never come and talk about the me part. All they can do is talk about them and what they did wrong and how they misbehaved and how they didn't follow through, and all the stuff that they did. They can never come and do the me part. But guess where the log is? The log is in the me. Let's just call this the pie of responsibility. Wise on the back side. <laughs> so, you can use this in your relationships. You can use this with your spouse. You can use this with your children. You can use this with your parents. You can work. You can use this with your coworkers. You can take the pie of responsibility. You can draw a circle on it, and you can say to the person that's there, "Now, let's talk about your." Back you up. Oh. 
I, that, that's on you. You talk about the piece, the small sliver of responsibility, because that's what Jesus is talking about when he says to pull the log out from your own eye. He's saying you need to deal with your part of the responsibility, even if you only own like 3% of the problem, Jesus still says, own the 3%. Your 3% isn't overridden by the 97% the other person owns in this. You still have to own the 3% that is the log in your own eye. You have to deal with this. But the problem is, if you, if you don't really deal with the issue, you're going to have bigger things going on. Now, if you focus on this part of your life, if you focus on this little piece of the pie, on being responsible for what you actually can be in charge of, what God has placed under your dominion, you will grow. If you focus on your part, your life will grow. Your heart will grow. You'll, you'll pray to God, and this is what you'll pray. God, change me. God, grow me. God, guide me. And what will happen over time is your kingdom will increase. Your dominion will increase. And that's what God wants for you. But the problem is, if on the other hand, you focus on the other person, if your focus is on here's what they're doing wrong, if you focus on assigning blame, again, it could be in your marriage, it could be at work, it, it could be what they're not doing, whatever it is, what will happen is your problem will grow. Your resentment will grow. Your negativity will grow. And your little kingdom, it will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And that is not what God has designed for you. See, blame is not productive. Blame wastes energy. Blame spoils relationships. Blame poisons families. It undermines the workplace. It violates love. And here's the worst part. I can so quickly rationalize it. Here's what I would do. It's easy for me to fail to love, to, to live with gratitude, to love others, to be responsible, to have energy, excitement, enthusiasm, to have faith, to have dependency on God and joy. I, I, I fail on those things. And then what I do is I'm going to blame it. I'm going to blame it on my schedule. I'm going to blame it on the task I have beside me. I'm going to blame it on some outside force. And then instead of Instead of taking responsibility for myself. Matter of fact, it's one of those things that Matt said when he was here. He said, people blame all this stuff. They're not taking responsibility by saying, I'm busy. And this is a good one, right, Fred? Being under the yoke of Satan is what busy stands for. Being under the yoke of Satan. And we want to we wanna blame Somebody, because we don't want to take responsibility. Taking responsibility for your life is part of God's plan for your growth. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you ignore the, the social injustices of this world. It doesn't mean that you deny that, that you've been a victim of something that's been horrible. Maybe there's been abuse or betrayal. Maybe you've gotten a disease you didn't even ask for. And something you can't control. But, what is, but it is actually this. It's joining my little kingdom, such as it is, with all its limitation into God's greater kingdom. His plan to change everything. 
there's this brilliant thinker. I think I say that just about every week. That's because they're smarter than me. So they're brilliant. I'm smart, but they're brilliant. But there's a brilliant thinker at Stanford University who actually converted to being a Christ follower as an adult by reading about the theme of blame in literature and history, how toxic and destructive it is, and then reading about it in the Bible and seeing how God turned things around. Here's the idea. All people, all societies, all cultures have a custom of scapegoating. Scapegoating is that practice where we find some somebody or some group to pin all the blame on, even for things that are not theirs. It's almost like a safety valve. It's like, you know, all the blame for resentment, rivalry, anger, and so on gets put on these people or on that person so we don't have to own it ourselves. Just think about this. In elementary school, there's always that one kid He's maybe a little bit awkward. Maybe he looks a little bit different than everybody else. Maybe he's a little bit slow in speech. Maybe he's not athletic like other people. And nobody takes a vote on this in, in, in school, but everybody makes him the scapegoat. So if something goes wrong, that little kid gets blamed for it. If there's something that's going to happen, it's going to happen to this scapegoat, this little boy. We just do it. We naturally do it. We start in elementary school, and we carry it on through our whole lives. We have a custom of scapegoating. That's what we do. And Gerard, this, this Stanford guy, says nations have scapegoats. For Hitler, it was above all the Jewish people. For Stalin, it was the dissidents. In Rwanda, it was the Tutsi. And, and in Cambodia... It was the Hmong. They were all the scapegoats. They were the ones, and, and what happens in scapegoating people is you have to dehumanize them in order to scapegoat them. Now in the Bible, in the Old Testament, back in the book of Leviticus, in, in the 16th chapter, on the day of atonement called Yom Kippur, the priest would actually take a goat chosen by lot, and he would bring that goat in front of the whole assembly of the whole nation, and then Clan by clan and tribe by tribe, they would come up and as the priest would hold his hand on the head of this scapegoat, they would confess all of the sin of Israel onto this scapegoat. Custom has it that they called it Azazel goat. And then when, when that goat receives all the sin of the nation on it, they would lead it out into the wilderness and release it it was a, a picture for all of Israel to see that all the sin on this goat, this scapegoat, is being taken away, never to come back again. It's a really bad thing when you wake up in the morning and you hear the bleeding of a goat and you look out and there's the scapegoat eating your roses and you're like, we've got all the sin of Israel here. Get him out of here. what kind of turned Gerard's heart towards God. He said that in ancient cultures outside of Israel, sacrifices very often involved human beings, human victims who were sacrificed to placate or appease gods. 
They were human scapegoats, which meant that all the problems of the society or the tribe were pinned on them. The idea was sacrificing them would heal the community of chaos nobody wanted to own. In fact, the idea of scapegoating a victim would heal the community's problems was so deep that the Greek word for the victim who was to be sacrificed was pharamakos. That's where we get our word pharmacology. And that's why nobody wants to go see the pharmacist. Because you think you can get sacrificed if you do. This is a dynamic word in the Bible because of the story of Cain and Abel. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices and they offered them before God. God looked at Abel's and said, your sacrifice is acceptable to me. He looked at Cain's and said, Cain, you did not follow what I told you to do. You failed to bring me an appropriate sacrifice. And so what did Cain do? Cain says, well, my problem clearly is Abel's. So what did he do? He killed him. He sacrificed Abel's life to bring appeasement to his own heart so that he could be okay. I'll get rid of Abel. I'll be okay. But what Gerard noticed in the Bible was something unprecedented happened. In this story of blame, the scapegoating would be told. But these stories are actually uh, sympathetic to the victim, to the one who gets scapegoated. God cared about the victim. God condemns the people, the families, the nation, scapegoating other people. God said the blood of Abel cried out to him from the ground. Joseph's brothers scapegoated Joseph. They had to get rid of him. Their thought was, well, if we just get rid of this kid, then we're going to be okay. Our lives are going to be fine. But God cares about Joseph. In other words, in the Bible, the ancient universal practice of scapegoating becomes undermined, begins to collapse, and all of this comes to a climax in the person of Jesus Christ. Because now Jesus is facing all the Sanhedrin, all the leaders, all the money changers at the temple, all the people who had the power to be. Everybody was looking and they're going, this is really bad and we need to blame it on somebody. Hey, let's blame it on that Jesus guy. And so Jesus gets blamed for everything and now they're going to, they're going to punish him and they're going to kill him. And the only person that could have stepped in and saved the day was Pilate. And of course, what did Pilate do? Pilate, he washes his hands publicly and says, don't blame me. I'm innocent of this man's blood. That's the way we do things. But of course, nobody is innocent except Jesus. And on the cross, he lays bare the mechanism, the evil, the violence, the injustice, the wickedness of scapegoating. We're told by the Apostle Peter in his letter to the church, this is what he said. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus became the greatest scapegoat ever. In Christ's great love, he absorbed all our sin, 
all the hatred, all the violence, all the wickedness of the world upon himself on the cross. He pays the price. He makes atonement. His resurrection says, now the way of blaming, of stigmatizing, of condemning, of rejecting, it's over. Jesus has become against all odds the greatest scapegoat, the ultimate scapegoat, the final scapegoat, the one who takes our sins on himself so that we can be forgiven. That is why in his community, in this community, everybody is welcome. Precisely because nobody is perfect. So here's how to practice kingdom living this week. This week I'm going to say, I'm going to invite you to say, I'm going to focus on my log in my eye, not the speck in somebody else's eye. That log, a spirit of condemnation, could be based on somebody's morality, ethnicity, their behavior that drives you crazy and you want to put gum in their hair, the religious beliefs, or of their political ideology. It could even be generational. And that's the stuff that actually divides churches up at times. Maybe you're older. And what that means to you is when you come to church, you see somebody younger. And you go like, can't they put on a nice shirt? It looks like they just came out of the gym to church. It looks like they just crawled out of bed. They didn't even comb their hair. Can't they sit up straight in church? Can't they stand up and sing when we sing? And basically, what you're saying when you say all those things is you're saying, why can't you be more like me? And you end up missing the wonderful spirit of adventure in them. Compassion, idealism, the desire to make a difference in the world. If you're younger and you come to church, what that means to you is that as you walk into church and you see somebody older, you look at them and you go, why are you so grumpy? Why are you so picky about what I wear? Why are you so ruthless? Why are you so technologically challenged? Good night. And just under the surface, what you're saying is, why can't you be more like me? Now, maybe you're not sure whether you're young or old. And what that simply means is that you're just old. So this week, stop trying to straighten other people out. There's only one person that can really straighten somebody out. And that's a mortician. A funeral director. You can try and straighten people out all you want to, but living people, they don't like being straightened out. They don't like being told what to do. And so the, the, the practice this week is you've got to give up the whole idea that you're going to straighten out your spouse, you're going to straighten out your children, you're going to straighten out your co-worker, you're going to straighten out your pastor. And this week, you're just going to practice taking responsibility for your own life, for your little slice of the chaos pie. Instead of automatically getting defensive or trying to justify or excuse, this week take a step back and say to God, help me. Help me to see the log that's in my eye. Help me not to, to take a look at their thing. Yeah, help me to own what I've just said. Those are my words. Help me to own my actions. Help me to own my habits. Help me to own those patterns, those attitudes, 
that's got to be all me. And this week, ask God to help you identify what the log is that needs to be removed. Jesus is right. The problem isn't that we have a log in our eye. It's that we don't even notice that we have a log. So we need outside help to become aware of what it is that needs changing. And the old language for this is called conviction of sin. And that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift nobody really wants because who wants to feel guilty by the Holy Spirit? But what happens is the other gift, repentance, relieves that, and then we start to move in the right way. Let me finish off with this story. There was a guy named Charles Steinmetz. He was an electrical engineer in the early, early 20th century and just an absolute genius. There's a story in Life magazine about how he was called by Henry Ford once to come to his plant because they were, he needed um, Steinmetz to consult about a problem they were having with this huge electric generator. It wasn't working, and nobody could figure out what was wrong. So Steinmetz came, comes to the plant, and he observes for two days, and then he climbs up a ladder and makes an X mark with a piece of chalk on the outside of this generator. He told the engineer to remove the plate that had the chalk X mark on it and replace 16 windings from the field coil. They did what he said, and lo and behold, it worked. Henry Ford was thrilled and until he got the bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, which was a ridiculous amount of money back in those days. And, and he asked Steinmetz for an itemized bill, and he sent him one. And the bill went like this, with only two items itemized. Marking a, a chalk mark on the generator. One dollar. Number two, knowing where to mark the mark, $9,999. Ford paid the bill. See, every one of us has a log. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a relationship. Because, because of that, my life is not working right. My character is out of whack. I don't even know why. This is a human condition. The psalmist said this. Who can discern his error. Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, that's the law. I don't notice. If we've invited him, the Holy Spirit will come and make an X so we know what the problem is and invite God to change it. The problem is most of us would prefer to go around and make a big X on other people's lives. I would put an X on you. Here's where you need to change. Here's where you need to be different. Would you like to know what your problem is? Because I can straighten you out. This week, you ask God to help you put an X over your heart, over your life, because there's something God wants to change in you, in me. This is maybe the greatest relationship prayer that we can ever pray. Lord, change me. It's not, Lord, change him. Lord, change her. It's not, Lord, change them. Lord, change others. Lord, it's change me. Help me to see 
the log in my eye. Because when we get that log removed, then we come with a, a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of love, a spirit of concern, and we ask the question, there's a few things I've noticed in your life. Could we talk about it? If the other person says, mm, no, not interested in you taking my log out of my eye, I'll do it myself. Then. We go, okay, Lord bless you and keep you. So that's this week. Take, don't, don't take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Ask God to help you remove the speck out of your eye. Do it with a grateful heart. Change your defensive streak. Change your st stubborn streak and say, God, show me where the edge is. Father, this morning, you've been speaking to us. And I'm confident that you have spoken to many people here this morning. That there was something that you said about their life that you wanted to change. And so I pray that we would be more than just hearers of the word this morning, Father. That what we would do is we'd become doers. That we would do what you're calling us to do. That we would step up and we would deal with the log that's in our eye so that we have freedom to live and move in Jesus as you've called us to do. And so I pray right now, God, for every person here that as we go into this next part of opening our voices and praising your name, that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts and we would deal with the log in our eyes. And so we want to commit this to you in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Listen.